This evening's talk is titled, Why Metta? And I'd like to begin with the Metta Sutta. This is a translation from the monks from the Amaravati Monastery in England. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So, why metta? A question that certainly has some obvious answers and some answers that may not be so obvious to us at points along the way of our practice. And our response to why metta or why practice metta may change as the question comes up over the years of our practice. This evening, I'd like to explore a few of the possibilities in response to this question. Exploring with you not so much through uh, didactic explanations or responses, but in part through various stories, some old stories and some more contemporary stories. beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest 
for their three-month rainy season retreat. A forest adjacent to a village of strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat and who were happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived there in this forest and became afraid, that they became afraid of the monks and actually felt quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create frightening sounds, frightening sights, and emit some very distasteful smells, hoping that this would make the monks leave their forest. Well, the monks also soon became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, their meditative concentration. Some developed fever, pain, dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to the Buddha and they related their tale to which the Buddha responded, My beloved monks, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest. Again, saying that it was impossible to practice there. The Buddha's response was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice, to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, You have encouraged many distractions and difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a weapon of protection. It's said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teaching. The monks, of course, didn't dare contradict the Buddha's wishes, and so, armed with the metta sutta and practice, they went back to the forest. For a while, continuing to experience feelings of fear and anxiety. But at the same time, diligently and virtuously practicing metta. Soon, there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger and resentment disappeared. And they began to feel, as they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect, welcome, and even reverence began to be their experience, along with the sense of being connected, like with family. And there arose in them the inclination to provide safety, to protect the monks from other dangers so that they could continue their practice of meditation peacefully. 
It said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation with metta as their foundation. And it said that because they were able to practice meditation peacefully, they all became arahants during that rainy season retreat. So the strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta, this quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say. Not only that not only do all the other divine abidings, the immeasurable capacities of heart spring from compassion, karuna, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita and equanimity, upekka. But it's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind, that allows the whole, the whole breadth of our practice to unfold. To unfold from and into. The qualities of open-heartedness, kindness, and patience. These qualities all being an essential ground of the process of awakening. In truth, there's no real mindfulness without metta. There's no true metta without mindfulness. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one, representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. The bottom symbol was one for the heart. So in Chinese pictographic writing, the word or symbol for love is breath through the heart. I remember... Uh, my teacher, Sada Upandita, saying that most people think that everything begins and ends here. And he'd kind of knock himself on the head. Then he'd say, but I've been checking for a long, long time. And I found that everything begins and ends here. And he'd thump himself on his chest in the heart center. Everything begins and ends here. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the mind, the heart. And using the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet, it's a very powerful energy 
that moves within us and from us. So what is it? One classical definition talks about it as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, our body and mind, however they manifest, moment to moment to moment. And the absence of ill will toward others, no aversion, and also no conceit, no pride. Metta is impersonal in nature, even in relationship to what we think of, are attached to in a positive or a negative way as ourself. Our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings. A mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those we're close to in our lives, those it's easy to care for, or those who might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us in some way, but the possibility of what is sometimes called an immeasurable impartiality in being able to connect and care for beings. This is from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one, or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, an inner patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing in the very specific ways that you are, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of awareness, maybe the mind opening and connecting to deepening states of concentration, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. And some of you working with the practice of metta, specifically in relationship to its purifying aspects, and maybe also in relation to the possibility of 
cult cultivating deepening states of concentration. In any case, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation and disconnection. These strong energies that move through our mind, through our heart and body, begin to unwind, begin to weaken, to fade, and dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, he taught through dialogue with his students, someone asked him, what can make me love? His answer was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. So a few reflections on the question we began with, why metta? Something that was amazing and so important to me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't depend on liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that with which we might not agree with, or beings who act in ways that we might not condone. Metta is accepting on a deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. And there are no favorites, no favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this, we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment, if there were no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up until this very moment, when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been actually is, increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. In the staff dining room at IMS, there was a quote from a woman named Dina Metzger sitting on a small 
altar there that moved me. And this is the quote. There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. And the Buddha, of course, said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis and the impetus that our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, never know. I'd like to spend a few moments exploring our expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, a familiar feeling. We look for some felt sense. And of course, our looking, our expectation, is based on something we're familiar with. It's pretty hard, if not impossible, to look for something that we don't know or something that we may have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can manifest as a familiar felt sense, but we can get caught. We can get stuck in this expectation. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness, It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility 
are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Shariputra's lion's roar that tells of this so clearly. It was just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat, and the monks were dispersing for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. On one occasion, after this retreat, the Blessed One was dealing, was dwelling in Jetta's Grove. At that time, the Venerable Sariputra approached the Blessed One, having paid homage, and sat down on one side and said to him, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat and wish to leave for a country journey. The Blessed One responded, Sariputra, you may go whenever you are ready. The Venerable Sariputra rose from his seat, saluted the Blessed One, keeping him to one side, to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputra had left, one monk said to the Blessed One, The Venerable Sariputra has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Then the Blessed One called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputra, saying, The Master calls you, Sariputra. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputra responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, taking the keys, went around the monk's lodgings and said, Come, revered sirs, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One and after saluting him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Blessed One said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula, who was the Buddha's son. When he was 18 years old, you taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I learned from it also. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth, Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow and leave without an apology. But this is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. 
Lord, I have practiced like the water. People who use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and unpure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing, Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing or disgust toward it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the position of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village or town with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like that of an untouchable youth, a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow, and go on without apologizing, Lord. I am not such a monk. Shariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Blessed One, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accuse the venerable Sariputra falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. The Blessed One responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputra falsely, wrongly and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offenses, makes amends, and in in the future practices restraint. The Blessed One then turned 
to the venerable Sariputra and said, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputra, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. I shall forgive him, Lord, if this reverend monk also pardons me, as I too may not have been so skillful and created some misunderstanding. May he forgive me. Sariputta and the accusing monk then bowed three times to each other and reconciled. For many of us, There are points along the way of our practice where the specific direction of unconditional loving-kindness needs to be turned around and directed towards ourselves. This isn't always easy to do or to accept once we begin to do it. Because of what might be strong conditioning that has told us that we're unworthy or not lovable or that it's selfish to love ourselves. We may have taken on and unwittingly carried on and become identified with as who we think we are over and over and over again, some karma that's been moving through our family, our culture, for years, maybe for generations. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up to knowing that we have a choice. This waking up sometimes comes via some strong dukkha. We wake up to knowing that we don't have to be run by any particular karmic predicament. We have a choice to step out, step off the karmic wheel, step out of the karmic predicament. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up to the fact that we can change our mind and that, in fact, our mind is changing through our practice. Through my childhood, my mother many times told me, you can't love another unless you love yourself. I had no idea what this meant in those years. But I've learned through the practice of metta and vipassana what this means, and that, in fact, it's true. Our practice directs us towards being selfish, so to say, in the right way, directing us towards connecting and accepting how it is in any given moment in our body and in our mind. Without this capacity to connect and accept, which is really the essence of metta, we'll never be able to see the true nature of things and instead be connecting with some imaginary experience, some idea of what is occurring, not what is actually happening. 
And again, it takes a tremendous honesty and humility to truly practice. And it sometimes takes lots of metta energy directed towards ourself to open to, be with, and clearly see things as they are. Metta doesn't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, irritation. Metta changes our mind. Practice is about making the choice to transform our heart, our mind, so that we embody love. It's a choice to not turn away, not distract ourselves, not pretend anything, but to stay still, be here, be present in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with the natural deepening and expanding capacity of our heart. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland the first year for two months and then for one month the second year. One student who stayed for the whole two months of practice that first year, a man in his early 40s, a very successful big city businessman, had been diligently practicing Zen karate, and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana and Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. As he deepened into his practice during this two-month period, he found himself very, very interested in the Metta teachings and practices. He described himself to me as a man of heavy emotions, He said that he was just like his father and his uncle, who were both angry most all of the time, which all of his life he had found quite difficult and unpleasant and very fearful. He said as a child he lived in fear of these two men most of the time, and yet as he grew up, he took on the same characteristics, which continued to be very difficult and unpleasant for him to be with, both for himself and in relationship to others. But unlike his father and his uncle, he began to see himself and life much more clearly through his martial arts practice and his interest in Buddhism and meditation. At some point during our intensive two-month practice period, he decided to take on a particular metaphrase, which isn't a traditional metaphrase, I sometimes offer uh, a phrase, may I love myself completely, just as I am in the present moment. And he decided to take this particular phrase on as his primary practice for the whole of the next year after he returned home. Because of his Zen training, he created a kind of koan for himself by changing one word of the phrase. He changed the word may I to can I love myself completely just as I am in the present moment. He silently said this 
koan over and over and over again during his sitting practice, in situations at work, with his employees, at home with his family. Whenever he felt angry, enraged, he said that very often he remembered to stop, to be still for a few seconds and then silently repeat the koan, even in the midst of anger. And more and more often as the year went on, he remembered that the practice, he remembered the practice just as the feeling of anger began to arise, which he found seemed to dissolve the anger very quickly. The next year when he came back to the retreat center in Poland for the one month of practice, it was quite obvious that there had been an enormous transformation in this man. Our human heart is naturally, intuitively loving, caring. So from this perspective, our practice isn't about working to get, to attain something, but rather it's about allowing the mind, the heart, through our practice to open. Our practice, be it metta, or Vipassana, allowing the heart to be loving-kindness itself. So from this perspective, we can turn around. We can turn right around and face awareness itself and ask, who loves? Who loves? There is metta. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. It belongs to no one. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, and it's inexhaustible. As we persevere with our practice, there's a deepening self-confidence, self-respect, a gentle and yet powerful strength and growing pervasive selflessness that begins to manifest and mature. Our capacity to meet the myriad facets of life and the various vicissitudes of life face on with sensitivity and deeper wisdom expands. So again, the question, why metta? I'd like to close that question for this evening with a story um, about a uh, a contemporary American story about a young Native American woman whose name was Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th, 1974 at the Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Sue Ann grew up with her sisters in her mother's three-bedroom house in Pine Ridge. Even today, people talk about what a strict mother Big 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 Chick Big Crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or 
in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind, unsupervised wanderings, and later cruising around in cars were out. An interview when she was a teenager, in an interview when Suanne was a teenager, she said that her sisters, she and her sisters, had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was, and is, strongly anti-drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick has belonged for many years to the small but adamant minority that takes that stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her aunt until the grown, other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, made a video urging, urging her message in a stern and wooden tone, and as a high schooler, traveled to distant cities for conventions of like-minded teenagers. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who is also a friend of her family, once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know that she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. In fact, she even had an effect on me. It dawned on me that if a 16-year-old girl could have the guts to say these things, then maybe us adults should pay attention too. I haven't had a drink since the day she died. As strongly as Chick forbade certain activities, she encouraged the girls in sports. At one time or another, they did them all, cross-country, running, track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and her sisters got tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layups against the drain pipe in the gutter until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Sue Ann tended to get into foul trouble in basketball games, as the referees ruled strictly in tournament games, and Sue Ann was used to a more headlong style of play. In the district playoffs against the team from Red Cloud, Sue Ann scored 31 points. Some people who live in cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why. In their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Red Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous, and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted 
Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Lead, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to, went to Lead to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, woo-woo-woo sound. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to court center. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some bumped into each other. Coach Zamega, at the rear of the line, didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances she had completed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a, for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket. 
took the ball from Danny Decori and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop with the fans cheering loudly now. Of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said, I cannot find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. And I agree. Closing the talk, if I can find it. <laughs> A quote from the Buddha. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. And let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.